Well, thank you so much, Daisy. Thank, thanks everyone for, for staying with us. Uh, you might be expecting me to talk a little bit about statistics because more or less has been on air throughout the lockdown, but I couldn't possibly top what David Spiegelhalter said earlier this evening. There's no way of following that. So I'm not going to talk about statistics. If you want to have my opinions about statistics, I am, I'm actually publishing a book in September called How to Make the World Add Up. And I haven't told anybody about it yet. This is, this is the, the first public unveiling of this book, How to Make the World Add Up. So um, if you think I might have something interesting to say about numbers and how to think clearly about them, then um, pop on over to your favorite bookshop and pre-order it. Um, I'm gonna talk about something totally different. Uh, I'm gonna talk about, um, well, I guess you'll see what I'm gonna talk about. A few minutes walk away, from where I live here in Oxford. There is a uh, slightly uh, archaic museum called the Bait Collection. And the Bait Collection is closed 21 hours a day and all day weekend. It's quite hard to get into. But a few months ago, I took my son to the museum. He's eight years old. He's a bit of a music nerd and he loves music. And the Bait Collection contains all kinds of wonderful musical instruments, uh, glass and plastic recorders and um, the harpsichord that Handel played on while he was living in London and all, all sorts of things. And um, so we were, we were playing around uh, in, in the main space. There were, there were instruments that you could blow through and instruments that you could hit. And um, as I was bending over to, um, to, to help him, actually I should show you, I'm gonna keep my clothes on, don't worry. I was sort of bending over and, and I stuck out my backside, and as I did so, there was this sort of, this sort of, um, ooh, sort of noise. Oh, this is very strange. And I stuck out my backside, ooh, and I realised that just on the side, the side where we were playing around with these obvious musical instruments, that there was something I hadn't noticed. It was a theremin. It was on, and I had started playing the theremin with, uh, with my backside. Not to put too fine a point on it. There you go, I recommend it. The bait collection, or, or as my son now calls it, the butt collection. You can play a theremin with any part of your anatomy that you want to. But it got me thinking, thinking about the technologies like that theremin just sitting there quietly, the technologies that we don't notice. So let me take you back to August the the 4th, uh, 1945, uh, Moscow. Uh, the Second World War in Europe has come to an end and the US and the USSR are positioning themselves for, for what comes next. And uh, on the 4th of August, a, a group of uh, young men and women from the Young Pioneer Organization of the Soviet Union, another Soviet Boy Scouts basically, uh, present Avril Harriman, the US ambassador to, uh, to the Soviet Union, they present him with a seal. Um, I don't mean sort of one of the big sort of flappy uh, animals that, um, no, a, a, a ceremonial seal, a carved ceremonial seal about, uh, that's sort of so big. Uh, and it's beautiful, it's got the, the, um, the eagle, uh, uh, the, the crest of the United States, uh, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And, and of course, Harriman, hands it over to uh, his um, uh, to his handlers or his, to, to, to his uh, security men 
and says, well, check this out because it might, might be bugged. And they, they do what they can, but they scan it. It doesn't seem to have any, uh, any electronics in it, nothing, nothing substantial inside. It seems to be completely solid as far as they can work out. And in any case, there are no batteries and um, there's no, no wires coming out of this thing. So, so what, what harm could it possibly do? And Harriman then uh, places it, gives it pride of place on the wall in his study above his desk from where it betrays his conversations for the next seven years. And the British were the first to figure out there was something going on. They, they, they would pick up radio broadcasts from inside the US Embassy broadcasting Avril Harriman's private conversations. This is not supposed to happen. Um, and the Americans figured it out too. But whenever they scanned the embassy for radio emissions, there weren't any radio emissions. There was nothing broadcasting from inside the embassy. And yet they would occasionally pick up broadcasts. It was very perplexing. And in the end, they realized uh, what was going on. Inside this, um, this object, which became known as the thing, inside this object was a very thin silver membrane over a hollow cavity, a very simple aerial attached to that. Nothing else, there's so little material, you couldn't detect it. Um, and there's no power source. That's okay because when the Soviets broadcast radio signals in, the aerial would resonate with the radio signals. It was using the silver diaphragm as a microphone and it would broadcast back, drawing on the energy of the incoming radio signals. And that's how it worked. An absolutely miraculous device designed by one of the uh, really unique minds of the 20th century, a gentleman called Leon Theremin. Uh, Theremin was already famous for inventing the musical instrument that if you like, you can play with your butt. Um, he lived in the United States. He was uh, married to an American woman, Lavinia Williams. But he went back to the Soviet Union in 1938 uh, for reasons that are not clear. Lavinia Williams said he'd been kidnapped uh, by Soviet agents. Um, another theory is he, he went back voluntarily. But in any case, he ended up being forced to work for Joseph Stalin. Um, Soviet style uh, innovation incentives. He was put in a labor camp and told to start inventing cool stuff. And he invented a number of things, one of which was the thing, this amazing bug. Um, now, that might just be a curious uh, note, footnote in history. Uh, we're not for two things. One is, I think, that the thing that Theremin designed is just a perfect metaphor for all of these pieces of technology that we think are too simple to pay attention to. Um, the other reason is the same technology that, that makes the thing work is the technology in RFID tags, uh, RFID, radio frequency identification, kind of very sophisticated uh, advances on the barcode. An RFID tag um, is, uh, is the technology that enables you to play, pay contact with, uh, with a credit card, a particular kind of RFID called, uh, called near-field communication. You have RFID tags in, in library books, RFID tags in the clothes that we buy in shops to make sure that we, we don't uh, take them away without paying for them. Uh, RFID tags in cars to enable uh, road toll uh, systems to work. RFID tags increasingly used in, in luggage so that um, 
uh, airlines, I mean, you remember airlines? They used to fly places. They don't lose baggage. I mean, it, it's an amazingly versatile technology. And it's, it works. It's powerful because it is basically so simple. Because as with the thing in Averill Harriman's office, it doesn't need a battery. And so you can have literally hundreds of billions of these things, quite possibly trillions of these things have been made. And they're just all over the world. And all they do really is they're powered by an RFID receiver. I mean, they can have batteries, but they don't usually. Um, they're powered by the, the signal coming from the RFID receiver. So when you, you uh, tap an Oyster card and enter the London Underground, for example, where when you tap your credit card, the power signal is coming from the receiver. And all the RFID tag is doing is to say basically, uh, right here, right now, this is me. And that's enough. I should tell you, by the way, about the, the very best use I heard of an RFID tag. Uh, some gentleman uh, placed an RFID tag from his Oyster card being used to uh, use London Transport. Um, and uh, Transport for London, as I think we call it these days. Uh, he put the RFID tag on the tip of a magic wand. And so he could sort of step onto a bus and then just wave his magic wand uh, at and uh, the RFID tag would be recognized, it's just marvelous. Um, but that, that's not why RFID tags are exciting. RFID tags are exciting because they're an example of a technology um, that isn't especially sophisticated, it isn't especially complicated, um, it's cheap. And being cheap is enough to really change the world as far as technology is concerned. And one of the points that I make in, uh, in, my, in my book, gosh, which is just, that, well, wow, one of the points that I make in my book, uh, The Next 50 Things That make, Made the Modern Economy, is that the world is full of these, uh, these simple technologies that we overlook. My favorite example, when I was working on, um, uh, on this book, uh, everyone said, oh, you have to include the Gutenberg printing press. Gutenberg printing press is incredibly important. Yeah, the Gutenberg printing press is, is an incredibly important piece of technology, but completely useless without paper. I mean, the printing press was a way of mass producing writing and paper was a way of mass producing a writing surface and it's no coincidence that the printing press was only invented shortly after a paper which is centuries old from china shortly after paper arrived in germany uh, johannes gutenberg thought hmm there's something i can do with this uh, before the animal skin parchment you would write a bible out on was so expensive that there was absolutely nothing to be gained from automating the process. You might just as well have done it the old fashioned way, you know, organic, artisanal, handcrafted, monk written Bibles. You need both. You need the incredibly sophisticated printing press. You need the cheap, simple paper, a product so cheap that we now use it to wipe, um, wipe anything you like. But uh, one of the principles I think we should embrace is the toilet paper principle. Once a technology becomes so cheap, you can wipe your backside on it. Uh, it's cheap enough to change the world. And it's not just paper. Uh, the uh, American Midwest and American West uh, was revolutionized by the invention of a fencing technology. Uh, the, the settlers were out there, they're trying to fence off the land, they're trying to keep, uh, keep away the uh, indigenous people. They're trying to keep away the cowboys. They're trying to keep away the cows more than anything else. They're trying to protect their crops uh, and lay claim to this land. And this is a, an enormous, literal land grab. You can't do it 
without fencing material. And there's not much wood out in the Midwest. So where does the fencing material come from? And the technology that changed the world was barbed wire. Barbed wire, which was uh, advertised by one of the great salesmen, a guy called Better Million Gates, as lighter than air, stronger than whiskey, and cheaper than dust. That was the thing, cheaper than dust. Only when it gets cheap that it changes the world. Or the shipping container, a humble steel box, eight feet wide, eight and a half feet high, 40 feet long, has done more to reshape global trade than all of the WTO agreements that you can think of. Uh, even apparently sophisticated technologies, such as solar panels, have come down in price largely because um, they've been IKEA-ified. So much more attention has been paid to uh, very large uh, factories achieving economies of scale. Uh, uh, a lot of attention has been paid to how do you assemble it in a simple way. So you can put solar panels on a roof with a smaller crew of people taking a few hours rather than a few days. It's not all the you know, amazing photovoltaic technology. Uh, I mean, that, that exists, that's remarkable. What's brought the price down has been the same kind of innovations that gave us inexpensive IKEA bookcases. And I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't mention the pandemic, because while we're all focused on the vaccine, and I think rightly focused on the vaccine, which um, if we're able to get a vaccine by the end of the year, that will be a miracle of technology, well worth celebrating. We shouldn't forget the really simple uh, innovations that have kept us safe or that have failed to keep us safe um, if we've had a shortage of them. So the masks, uh, the gloves, the, um, the cotton swabs and uh, the, the equipment necessary to scale up testing. If we'd had testing really scaled up in the UK, we might have, like Germany, been able to keep a lid on the epidemic much earlier and save tens of thousands of lives. That's not because we didn't have a vaccine. It's because we didn't have enough swabs and we couldn't get organised. I mean, these inexpensive innovations, um, they get overlooked. The glass vials in which we're going to have to uh, put the vaccine once we develop the vaccine, there's a shortage of them. There's even a shortage of something called adjuvant, which is a sort of an oil that uh, makes many vaccines uh, go further or work better. It comes from a soap bark tree in South America, uh, and they finish their harvest in February, and the harvest doesn't start again until November. These are, people don't talk about these things, but these things potentially change the world. So by all means, let's celebrate the sophisticated inventions, the, the internet and uh, genetic engineering and the, the computer and the internal combustion engine for all of the, you know, the differences, good and bad, they've made to the world. But let's not overlook the simple stuff, some toilet paper and barbed wire uh, and maybe even RFID chips. Because uh, it's all too easy when you're playing around with the beautiful musical instruments uh, to ignore the, the simple thing behind you might just creep up and surprise you as it did me and my son and frankly as it did Avril Harriman. Thanks so much for tuning in, it's getting late. Um, I'm really grateful to 5x15 for inviting me and I hope you've all had a really cracking evening. Thanks a lot.